Yes, as we remember today on September 11th, the 2,996 lives lost in a nation on fire. Yeah, so if you hear me coughing, sorry I didn't edit it out because there's a lot of smoke in California today. And 200,000 lives lost so far here in 2020 at the hands of a president who cares more about the stock market and his Twitter game than the nation's citizens. I'm Sarah. I'm Robert. Yeah. <laughs> and we're here to talk about Pump Up the Volume Minute 9 through 12, which start with Mark telling us or telling his listeners that he's not going to be good for advice about love. I have to interrupt you briefly because we do have a second or two before we cut over to Mark. We, we have Paige still. We start yeah. with Paige and she is twirling the cat's whiskers. Just just something I noticed and found interesting oh, as a person who's always twirling my own hair and playing with things myself. It was just a nice little touch that even though she's in the perfect room and has a perfect deal life, she's she's anxious. So then we cut over to Mark. Yeah. And he's reading mail. Uh, my boyfriend won't talk to me anymore. How do I show him that I really love him? And he says if he could give anyone advice on love, he'd be out there making it instead of talking about it. Instead of, yeah, instead of sitting in here talking to you guys, you yeah. know little self-deprecating in the tone. And he continues talking, and we get more cutaways to people listening, including we see someone typing on what looks like the old blue screen word perfect, which was so nice because I loved that thing in the 90s. Yeah, it made me think of Doogie Howser when I saw yes. That's what I associate yes. <laughs> <laughs> screen. And we see the start of a, of a letter on the screen, Hard Harry, do you think I should kill? And we don't see where they go, where they're going with it. It could be someone else trying to kill their parents. We don't know. Exactly. So, of course, they leave off on that word because they have to build a little bit of suspense. Yeah. <laughs> we also don't get to see who's typing it. Though we do see him mm-hmm. this minute because we assume this is, from the wording, this is Malcolm. And we do some, see Malcolm later in this segment. But we don't see that he's the one typing. In fact, I think there's something laying on his keyboard when he when we cut to mm-hmm. a shot of him. Yeah, Mark gets a letter uh, that's kind of negative. Someone that tells him, uh, I think you're boring and obnoxious and have a high opinion of yourself. And he says, of course, some of you are probably thinking I sent this to myself. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny because we've seen the past 20 years on social media, people make names for themselves by creating manufactured drama Mm -hmm. and PR and a lot of, (laughs) so that happens, but yeah. And more of the letter, it's someone asked, talking about school, and Mark explains that he just arrived in this suburb, or stupid suburb, and he has no friends, no money, no car. A little behind-the-scenes thing, the only reason he doesn't have a car or a license, because Christian Slater, I believe, had just had his license suspended. Oh, so they just threw that in. Or didn't yeah. have a license. I can't remember if it was a good, like, he just hadn't gotten to it, or it was a way. And so they had him walk everywhere, and then at the end, Nora has to drive the Jeep. So that was written in because Christian Slater couldn't drive. That's kind of funny. I would think there's no way around that or to simulate driving that isn't actually driving in movies if somebody can't drive. Um, well, it depends if he, maybe it was that he didn't have a license. Like he literally just couldn't drive and wasn't good at it. Cause then it's even hard to fake. I know in license to drive, they drove, though they didn't have licenses, by having an adult in the trunk of the car. Yeah. So that they, legally they had an adult with them. One of the things that I think is funny here is he had just spent, well, and will continue to, 
criticize his father for selling out for the tract home in the suburbs and all of the just American dream money making it. And here he's saying that the reason that he's on the air is because he has no money and no car and Mm -hmm. he's wanting the physical right. object. He's wanting the success that he's blaming his father for having. <laughs> yeah, if he if he had a license and had a car and had money, he'd be off going to a mall, but playing video games, smoking a joint, and getting stupid. Yeah. So, so he's not here for particularly altruistic reasons, at least not yet. He's saying he's there because of a Gen X boredom. Yeah. <laughs> Which. In a way, I mean, you were complaining about his character last time. In a way, lessens that, I think, for me, because he's almost, though he's the central character, he's not the one driving a lot of the action. Like, Nora's the one who eventually drives him to do stuff at the end of the movie, and the other characters are the ones who have things actually happening, with Paige's drama over whether she wants to go to school or not, Malcolm wanting to, or Malcolm killing himself. Uh, I forget the the other kid who calls in later, because we're not there yet. Like, they all have their own drama that drives his show and turns his show into something better. Is there anything between him talking about the video games and then saying all the great ideas are already used up? No, because he says that right after he says smoke a joint and get stupid, we cut to Nora, who is now, she's not drawing anymore, she's smoking a cigarette. There's a lot of smoking in this movie. Yes, I know. (laughs) Even his mother's smoking later. Um, And then she puts her head down and is just kind of, Relaxing, listening to it as he says the thing about all that everything's been done. So, yeah, he says all the great ideas are already used up. There's nobody to look up to. And this film is 1990s. So it's the end of the 1980s. Greed is good decade where we have the worship of money, the whole material girl decade, the house in the suburbs, the two car garage. But it's built on a fraud, not necessarily an actual fraud, but a fraud in terms of people's happiness, what they want versus what they think that they want. I find a couple of things here that are interesting. One, I find it contradictory that he's saying that all the great ideas are already used up, but all the problems still exist. So if we have all of the same problems, that means we still need lots of great ideas because they're not being solved. And so it's not that the great ideas are all used up. We are just struggling with how to solve problems. And we also need the platform to share them, which is what he's trying to do. Almost as you say, without knowing it, because he just Mm -hmm. kind of gets on the air because he's bored. He does have a need or a desire to solve or at least explore these problems and talk about them. But it's interesting because throughout the film, it's like he's learning from everybody else's experiences and then he finds more meaning in what he's doing yeah he's joining (laughs) he's joining their community they're not joining his yes so also when he says all the great themes have been used up and turned into theme parks (laughs) i really love that line (laughs) all the great themes have been used up and turned into theme parks so this made me think as a calm professor about Jean Baudrillard and Simulacra, although I actually read more of Baudrillard as an English major than a calm major. But for those who might not be familiar with Baudrillard, he is a, or he would have been a postmodernist calm scholar at the time, 
around the time of this film, 1980s, 1990s were the time that postmodernist ideas were uh, the most popular. He's, Baudrillard claims that our current society has replaced all reality and meaning with symbols and signs, and that human experience itself is a simulation of reality. The simulacra that Baudrillard refers to are the significations and symbolism of culture, of media, um, that construct our perceived reality, the understanding by which we live our lives, and the idea that our shared existence is rendered legible. So Baudrillard believed that society has become so saturated with these simulacra and our lives are so saturated with the constructs of society that essentially all meaning in our lives has become meaningless. And the most common example that people use to teach this idea of a simulacra or hyperreality is Disneyland, right? Because as soon as you show up on Main Street, you're in a different world mm-hmm. and <laughs> you are that's why people all love the, to all the go fake there buildings so that are just yeah. slightly smaller than norm than they should be yeah because it makes it seem magical yeah you seem bigger than you are yes and i don't know about you but when i leave disneyland it just takes like a few minutes or a little while to reorient mm, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it helps that i think that's a deliberate choice by them when with their redesign over the years mm-hmm. used to be you could park and kind of walk to the entrance. Mm-hmm. Now the place is so big with a, a California Adventure Park and downtown Disney that you park, you have to take the tram to get over there. It's like this yeah. transition period, which is useful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but for Baudrillard, although Disneyland is a, is a good example to explain hyperreality, because most of us, even if we haven't been there, have been to a theme park or at least are familiar with the concept of theme parks, his idea was that everything essentially is a simulacra like our life we look around and at the tract homes that we're in or the neighborhood that we're in or the video games that we're playing or everything essentially that we do throughout our lives including the media that we consume this podcast we're on right now it's all a form of hyper reality and a few examples that i see just in these a few examples that i see just in these four minutes are one He's faking sex or simulating sex. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't see real sex happen. And that comes up later, too. So you're being able to actually Yeah, something sex. I realized when we watched the movie again recently is he fakes it masturbating multiple times. And then when he finally has, in a different movie, might have had the chance to have sex, it gets mm-hmm. interrupted. And so we never get a finishing thing for that. Mm-hmm. It's like the... I don't know what that means yet. I'll figure mm-hmm. out in later segments why this movie deals with sex, but then constantly has it be fake or doesn't go anywhere, yeah. which could come down to what you're talking about with everything being fake. I think that you mentioned this before, but he had some type of porn magazines in his yes. room. I couldn't tell what they were, but yeah, one of them had an ad for like penis enlargement. One had an ad for some other pornography thing. It was stacked in with his music magazines. Yeah. Might have even been ads in the music magazines if they were cheap magazines. Yeah. And while, of course, it's very typical that a teenage boy would have porn magazines in his room and don't necessarily want to, like, get into a discussion about porn, it is just another little added detail of simulated sex. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the second, just this comes up kind of later in the minute, so we can go back to it when he's seeing the 
was about to call it an eviction letter. It's an expulsion letter. Expulsion Expulsion letter where we're going to have the theme come up about education not really being about useful knowledge, but about numbers and about acquisition of degrees and who we allow in our system and who we kick out of our system. We we can get to that when we get to the letter, but also it's interesting that the letter doesn't, is not explicit. Mm -hmm. Even the letter itself, which is a memo, like an internal memo, is vague about what the situation is with Cheryl. And then we also have him replacing conversation of sorts because he says, if I know, if, if I know, I'm saying that wrong, if I knew anything about love, I'd be out there making it. Mm. However he says it. So, and then just saying, like, he doesn't have money and car license again. He doesn't have the ability to live a life. So he's replacing those interactions with kind of this hyper interaction of going on the air, replacing conversations and speaking with people one-on-one, which he has trouble with by creating this alternate type of reality for himself to vent that frustration. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. (laughs) Now you say that was deep and you burp because... That's what you do after you say something interesting. Uh, really? Is that a podcasting <laughs> thing? That no, that's what he does. Oh. <laughs> after he says like, the whole thing about theme parks, he, he pauses and he shakes, he shakes his head. He's like, that was deep. And oh. then he burps. <laughs> I thought I was getting hazed into some podcasting no, ritual. No. I forgot that he did that. <laughs> he does that and then he's like, oh no, the creature stirs. And he goes back to pretending to masturbate again. Mm-hmm. Although this time, but not very good pretending to masturbate. <laughs> um... Yeah, we and we see we see Donald who's going to sell the tapes later. Listen, is mm-hmm. listening and might be the one who wrote this letter. I'm not sure, or it could be the other kid who had name doesn't have a name because we see another kid that we didn't see last segment. And then we we cut to and I got to put this in because I did I got it wrong last segment and I'm going to blame the transcript and not myself because there's not a lot of information about the cast in this movie other than their names. The girl in the car last week, I was like, that looks kind of like Janie, Nora's friend. But in the transcript that I found, it says it's Annie. And in the cast, there's an Annie. Huh. So I'm like, okay, she just looks similar. No, it's Jamie. I was wrong. And the guy with her is not named Jonathan. I don't know why he was named Jonathan in the transcript. Because there is a Jonathan in the script later. He's Jamie, which is really annoying. A couple are named Janie and Jamie. But more interesting about them is uh, Janie is played by, what's her name? Lala Slopeman. Jamie is played by Ahmet Zappa. And though they're playing boyfriend and girlfriend, in real life they are cousins. Oh, hopefully like distant cousins. Maybe like third cousins. I think first cousins, cousins, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that we see them actually doing much other than sitting in a car listening to the radio. I don't remember what they do later. But I thought that was funny. They, like, they, I think they even got cast separately. Oh. And they were cast as boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah. And they're not gonna turn down the role in the film. They're not really doing anything, so, yeah. But then there's a weird thing is that if Janie's out in the car, I don't know who Nora was on the phone with. Last segment, because she was, maybe she's getting more people to listen to Mark. We don't see her interact with a lot of people, but she could easily be calling some other person and getting them to listen. Yeah. They established pretty early on that she's kind of a muse character. Yeah. So, which is problematic in a different way, but I don't want to just trash them. (laughs) I think that's problematic only because I think most people remember his character. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, he's memorable because he's on the screen a lot. He does crazy things. But if you, we're breaking this movie down, so I think we might find the focus. He's not, he's our protagonist, but I'm not sure he's our main character. Or maybe it's the other way around. 
He's the main character, but she's probably the protagonist because yeah, she's the one who's driving the action. Yeah. <laughs> and she's she keeps trying. Like if we look at it, he may be the one on the screen, but the plot is about her trying to find him. Then when she figures out he's him, trying to push him to do more interesting things. And then yeah. eventually literally driving him around so he can do it. Yeah. Which is problematic, but I'm trying to avoid <laughs> going on a feminist rant right now. <laughs> There'll be plenty of room for yeah. that. Uh, instead, yeah, he, he, he gets up and in his pretending to masturbate this time, he starts hitting things with a golf club. <laughs> yeah. And making a mess of his room. Which he, among other things, oh, he, I'll tell you what he hits and then you can talk about the song. Because uh, he hits Circus Magazine December 1989 and Power Metal February 1990. It's got Metallica on the cover. Circus One is was like the year in music issue. And a textbook, which I don't think exists, but I love the title because it's yeah. so on the nose. Economics, American Free Enterprise System. <laughs> and that's sitting on the on the couch as well. I'm not sure he has a bed, by the way. If this is his bedroom, he doesn't have a bed. Wait. Don't we see the bed later on when Nora's in his room and his father's really happy about that? I think she's behind the couch. Oh, well, I guess we'll figure that out later. That's how I remember his bed in my mind. So, And the the song he turns on is, of course, uh, what's it called? Love Comes in Spurts by Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Yes, and want to mention briefly that it's an interesting segue between simulated sex and simulated violence yes which is another simulation he's Mm -hmm. he's not actually doing real i guess he hits a couple of magazines but he's not really enacting yeah he's not really enacting violence in this he might damage that cardboard box on the floor but it looks like it's trash already anyway yeah and also societally how male sex or male sex acts are so closely intertwined with violence Couple interesting notes about Richard Hell and the Voidoid song Love Comes in Spurts. The studded punk look that most of us associate visually now with the punk rock from that era is attributed to Richard Hell and, and to that band. They were pioneers of early New York City punk scene, so they were already, already were crafting and kind of having that look in the mid 1970s playing, um, parties and playing underground shows and this particular song is a song of personal heartbreak it's really just unless i'm missing something from it i really just interpreted this song as a teenage boy who's going through kind of a first heartbreak in a relationship and he's upset that she dumped him and he's dealing with it so yeah um it is kind of funny they're they do well with the humor here, choosing a song titled Love Comes in Spurts mm-hmm. while he's simulating masturbation. Yes. Yeah. Obvious, but he'll say it anyway. <laughs> it's it's what he does. Yeah. And he had the record ready to go, too. He has yeah. multiple record players, and this one was just sitting on the next one over. And uh, we get shots of people reacting to him. Uh, Janie and Jamie. Um, I think it's Jamie says that he sounds like a chronic masturbator, and she says, yeah, he prides himself on it. And because I forgot to mention it last time, I will mention that Maz is the one who's impatient about it and is like any time guy. Because last segment, there was a great visual joke as Mark finished his fake masturbating. We cut to Maz in his car lighting a cigarette. 
Yeah. <laughs> like he just had sex. He, he was the one who got off. But what we get is that as the song keeps playing, Mark says that he's, he's, uh, what do you say? I'm gonna explode. Wait, where is it? Lost it. I'm beat. I'm whipped. It's quitting time. Gotta recuperate. And he turns off the signal and then turns off the show. Which he was recording, by the way. He has a real reveal in his room that's recording his own show, which seems like bad evidence to leave around for later. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, he turns off the power and we see briefly, if, if you like more of Mark's stuff, he still has action figures and has them out on his desk. He's got a Sergeant Slaughter and a, one of the Ghostbusters, but I couldn't figure out which one because it didn't make any sense. Yeah, you want to nitpick 80s toys, it looked like Venkman's head on Egon's body, and that was confusing. <laughs> but Christian Slater did actually have an, an action figure collection, I know, because when he got his action figure for Robin Hood, he mentioned it in interviews that he had Star Wars figures because he loved Star Wars. So these might be his. I don't know. Yeah. Going back to Baudrillard for a moment and the idea of the simulacra, just... In the first several minutes of the film, we're seeing so much media saturation. Just all of the, all of the music, all of the magazines, all of the action figures, the Gorbachev and, pop and culture, Nixon, the Gorbachev the, and Nick. Yeah. So it's just loaded. Like you have very cluttered. Well, and we see the picture of an iguana before we see that he has an actual iguana as well. Yeah. So representations of things before we hear his voice before we see his face. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And one of the first tenets of this phenomena is, or rather how he explains the loss of distinctions between what is reality and what is the simulacrum is media culture. So contemporary media from television, which we'll see in a moment in this scene, film, magazines, billboards, the internet. This film doesn't really do the internet at all, no. I don't think. Yeah. Well, it's possible that Malcolm, I assume, I assume Malcolm, no, he reads his letter off a paper layer, so he's just typing it on a computer, so it's not in handwriting. Yeah. So it's not an email. So we do have computer usage, but not specifically internets, so, or the internet. So it's concerned not just with relaying information or stories, but media culture interprets our most private selves for us. If you go into somebody's home and you see their action figures or you see their music or you see their books, you're learning their private self, like what has shaped them or made them who they are. So we're seeing Mark says he can't or rather he doesn't talk so much about himself personally. So how we're seeing him is through. These physical stuff. representations. Yeah. And also that's how we're seeing Paige and seeing Nora as well. Yes. We're seeing, it's through, we're in their rooms, we're in their space. We're seeing how they in their private space are showing us themselves. So we approach each other in the world through the lens of these media images and through these physical representations. So we're no longer acquiring goods for their own purpose. And this is something I think you'll talk about in a minute because the parents have all types of goods. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and things that are not necessarily for real needs, but it's commercials and commercialized images. Yep. And these images keep us one step removed from the reality of our body. So we're separate from our body. So we can't have a real relationship. We can't have real sex. We live in a fake tract home and... Yeah, we just struggle with meaning. Yeah. So he, he turns off the show. We cut to Maz, who's immediately starts his car to leave. 
because he doesn't need to be at the school grounds anymore. And he tells, this is where he says that Mark, uh, or Hart Harry, sometimes he's on for five minutes, sometimes he's on for five hours. That's my man. But we cut back to Mark. He's dancing with his golf club, still enjoying the song, and he dances his way through a continuity air of doors <laughs> as he leaves his room and suddenly is in a hallway that doesn't match, even though the music continues without cut and then goes into the living room and his parents are in the attached kitchen it's divided by like a little wall low wall and he's there watching the news which hard to figure out a specific news story from 1990 but is something about space because it specifically talks about the united states on its way to greatness and um who can say that what may happen in the 21st century america's scientists something something turn their attention to the worlds beyond this earth and reach ever farther into space, is this not mankind's greatest and most inspired purpose? So it's like this inspirational news story about NASA. Yeah, and it's also kind of funny, because if we go back to the beginning of these minutes, he's talking about all the great themes turned into theme parks and all the great ideas already being set. So if you've already conquered the suburbs with tract homes and you need something new to do, then I guess you look towards space. Yeah, which... This is 90 and written probably in 89. I don't know how long it took Mm -hmm. Alan Moy to write it. But this is post-Challenger. So also it's a little weird that they're watching a space thing. I didn't realize how many shuttle flights happened in 89 and 90. It was actually quite a few. I thought there was more of a delay before they started doing them regularly again. That's how I remembered it. Uh, But it's interesting. They're watching a NASA story. And Mark's mother, Marla, says, God, I feel so out of touch here. I'm not sure unless they're from, like, Florida. Yeah. <laughs> Why she did a news, the, the NASA story would do that. I think probably the scene they picked was separate from the script, though, so they just need a generic news story. And since I mentioned Mark's action figures, I will mention that on the little desk next to the edge of the kitchen, there are, there are, uh, wooden figurines of what look like Uncle Sam and an Amish couple and their daughter. So it's almost mm-hmm. this family, but not quite, because the, the child definitely is supposed to be a girl with, like, an apron that matches the mother, except they got marks. <laughs> Which then he takes out that, that frustration of not being that daughter, I guess, by swinging the golf club at his father's head. And I think he's swinging <laughs> the golf club at, well, in the general direction of, but more toward the television set as the representation of shattering that well, fake... I, it could be, it could in a way be both because from the, from behind, his father's head is pretty next to where the television is, the angle the camera has, and where Mark would be. But where he stops swinging is right next to his father's head, but then it's going back to your thing about everything being fake. His parents don't notice that he just danced out into the living room and swung a golf club by his father's head. Yeah, it's so funny. They're completely a- oblivious to the golf club but then as they continue to have the conversation they're not at least his mother isn't completely obvious to him because she yeah. is worried about him uh-huh. but <laughs> yeah his behavior she talks about. um but as as they're still ignoring him and having their conversation he goes over to their vinyl collection and pulls out a jimmy swaggered album which i didn't know jimmy swaggered had albums uh, it's a song called You Don't Need to Understand from 1974. Yeah, I had no idea he had an album either. When I saw the name, I even forgot for a moment who he Jimmy was. And had, was yeah, <laughs> and had to look up that he was a 1980s TV, TV evangelist, evangelist yeah. which is another 
representation or another example rather of simulacrum if you ask me which is fake hyper reality of religion <laughs> oh my th- yeah. the church i grew up in had we had our tv show mm-hmm. world tomorrow yeah it's all a bunch of fancy editing and animation and stuff to go along with what's basically another sermon they would have done in church yeah catholics we were a little bit more subdued. We just had the same ritual every week. <laughs> you show off in the church with like swinging the, what are the things with the smoke, you know? Oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah, we have awesome incense. I don't know. I, and cool outfits and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> also really other horrible things, which we don't need to do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. But yeah, his, he picks that up. The parents are talking, uh, Brian, the father, says, well, we didn't move out here to stay in touch. And Marla says, then why did we move out here? Their dialogue's a little on the nose for this part yeah. of the movie, but the interaction, I think, between the two of them is an interesting introduction because it feels like she's not quite that comfortable here either, kind of like Mark. And we said last time, we don't know if she's a stay-at-home mom or if she has a job. She's dressed up really nice, but in the 80s, stay-at-home mom's <laughs> dressed up really nice too on TV and in movies because you want everything to look nice like it's the 50s. Well, that's all right. She's just a woman, so she's just there to humanize the father the way that Nora's there to humanize Mark, so it's okay. (laughs) Sort of, although I think the mother actually does more later. She's the one who goes to the PTA meeting, and actually she's the one who knows Mark is doing something. She guesses that he's going home to listen to that guy on the radio. Right, but he, like Mark, is the one who has the position of power and some authority, and she's the one... Who's essentially well, yeah, his father is going to be the <laughs> deus ex machina at the end of the film. That gets Chris in trouble. And, but Brian says it's because it's a nice place to live. I'm making good money and I'm the youngest school commissioner in the history of Arizona. Which in the reality of the film, I guess, is true. <laughs> in our reality, they don't have school commissioners. They have superintendents and they're elected. So he would have to live there, I think, to get elected as superintendent. <laughs> but that's fine. This is written by a guy from Canada. Yeah. Things like this in movies, I don't know about you, but they don't really bug me. I just put myself in the story that they're presenting, and yeah, (laughs) it doesn't matter. I did look up, like, I didn't write it down because it wasn't that important, but I looked up, like, who was commissioner at the time, just in case they did something interesting, Mm -hmm. because then it's not that good, because you're erasing some person that did something, but it was the commissioner, who was commissioner for, like, ten years. Oh. (laughs) Or not commissioner, the superintendent. Yeah. So now I'm doing it. Their reality is taking over. Yeah. (laughs) And then we get Marla's uh, opinion of her husband. She she says, the man I married loved his work, not power and money. And he says, that's all right. I still love my work and I love power and money, which just goes back to we were talking about them being like hippies who turned establishment last right. time, which is why the other thing I noticed around their kitchen is uh, the nice uh, Corning Vision cookware and a really big set of Spode blue Italian plates and bowls and dishes, which they actually use, but also have on a nice china cabinet in the hallway. And those things are expensive. They cost $30 a plate now. Yeah, that's one of those symbols of making it. Yeah. You've and they just the transported that set to Arizona from somewhere east. That That's big, because you got to pack those individually. They probably hired movers. Oh, yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> which is funny when you see Mark's room is such a mess. But out here, it's neat little statues and plates. Uh, by their records, there's some, like, chickens <laughs> statues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they have a horse statue, which reminded me of the Brady Bunch, up above the dishes. So I don't know about you, if you're 
parents or grandparents or anybody had those dishes, but my grandma had them in a china cabinet. <laughs> we didn't have the ones this nice, I don't think, but we had the ones where you got them at the grocery store, like one dish at a time. Yeah. We had some of those and never completed the set. And I think we had two different incomplete sets of those. I think that's probably more American than having the... Well, and it's the 80s. You know, what else we had is uh, cups from Burger King, like the Return of the Jedi glasses and, you know, movie tie-in glasses, which were really nice, but so breakable. I remember having some of those, but I also remember my father not liking them, so they would just kind of disappear. (laughs) We were fine with commercial dishes, you know. Celebrate all of the pop culture that we can at yeah. all times. And that was the difference between the difference our between parents you and I, again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you and your house with your parents was all the pop culture and my dad didn't really like pop culture at all and I wasn't allowed to listen to most music or watch most movies music, mm-hmm. which is why a music show was a lot easier to get around. It's easier to access yeah. as a teen than movies and having a Way to watch them. Well, it's two like, hours you're like the teens in this movie listening yeah. to Mark. You know, yeah. you can just have your radio on in your room. Exactly. And Mark so, does have a TV though. So yeah. So my dad didn't really like pop culture dishes any more than he liked pop culture. But anyway, I think we're almost to the end of this four minute. Yeah, because um, Mark goes to the fridge, gets a drink, and it wasn't until I slowed the movie down that I realized he doesn't get a beer. I've always yeah. thought he got a beer because his father says, is that a beer? And he's like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but no, he just grabs another Diet Pepsi, which I know we complain about Mark as a character, but he's also interesting in some of the things that he's not. Like earlier he complained and said he'd go out and smoke a joint and get stupid when this character in a different film, like maybe more recently, mm-hmm. would be the guy who's going out and smoking yeah. a joint. And I'll talk about it when he talks to his iguana later. I think that scene is even framed as if he is smoking a joint. Huh. Because he's holding the thing up close to his face and just talking to it. It's also sort of a Hamlet talking to a skull yeah. kind of reference. We'll get to that there. But even here, I felt like he was the kid who would grab a beer out of the thing and take it to his room and just make a joke about it. But he's not. He's drinking Diet Pepsi, just like he said on his show. I think his delivery of that line is great. He says, sure? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure? Yeah. <laughs> because it's not quite contempt. No, no. It's like something a little... There's like some <laughs> obvious sarcasm to yeah. it, but also he's having fun. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I grabbed a beer. Yeah. <laughs> but he's like, he doesn't care if his father thinks he grabbed a beer. Right. Also. And also we see later on, his father is wanting him to be more rebellious in a way than he... Or his father is wanting him to be a different type of rebellious. Yeah. His father would be fine if he is grabbing a beer or... Having sex with Nora in his, in his room, but his father doesn't want him to do actual rebellion, which is right. to rebel against. Yeah. Well, it's because his father is the establishment now. He's right. The school commissioner. But then we get that his mother does notice that something's wrong. He says, if you notice his behavior lately, and Brian says, what about him? He's just, not, he's just so unhappy here. But the timing here is interesting because the father, like, sighs, gets up, starts to walk out of the kitchen, and then says, I'll go talk to him. Yeah. So it's like he's reluctant to go do it, but he's gonna do it because he's the parent. He's also, we'll see in his, in his office, he has a book about like child psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he may be school commissioner, but he maybe had a different position in school before. It was like more like a counselor, like Deaver. We'll see later. And so he's gonna go check. Meanwhile, Marla, uh, left alone, 
raises an unlit cigarette, and then magically in the next cut is already smoking, smoking it. it. Yeah. She, never light, she never lights it. She's just smoking. So, more smoking. We see where, well, I was going to say we see where Mark gets it, but that's not fair. My father could smoke too. Everyone smokes in this movie. Yeah. It's 1990. People, this is like, we all knew it was bad for us, but people were still rebelling and being like, we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. In Pittsburgh in the early 90s when I was in high school, everybody smoked and you could buy cigarettes for $2 a pack. And even if you were 15, 16 years old and it was illegal, they'd sell them to you. So it was a completely different time around that. And so this segment ends with Mark in his dad's office and he's searching around through the paperwork. The, the desk calendar, it's blurry, but I'm pretty sure it says February 1st, which fits with the magazines we've seen. So it puts it in the spring of the school year, not fall. And all the, Child psychology book is called Your Child's Self-Esteem. It's by Dorothy Corkill Briggs. It's another thing from the 70s, just like those plates, just like their Jimmy Swaggart album. Uh, it's from 1975. I couldn't find much specifically about her as a person or the book, but apparently it's very popular. Mm-hmm. You do Google searches and it's for sale everywhere and everyone references it. It's still apparently a reference book on the topic. And 1975 would have been right around when Mark was born. So yeah. maybe she bought it then. <laughs> And then Mark finds the expulsion letter, which we could talk about next time if we want. I do have a screen cap of all the text for it. Or yeah. we can talk about it when Mark reads it, because he's going to read it soon. Either way, we could save it. Save it for next time. Okay, so anything else to say about the parents or Mark this time? No, I think golf. we... Yeah. Or even the fact that they have golf clubs. Another rich person. Yeah. Conspicuous consumption thing. Yes. Consumption and sign of making it. Because you wouldn't be in Arizona in a tract home without golf clubs. (laughs) Yeah. Because there's probably a golf course in Paradise Hills, Arizona. I don't think there's one in Saugus, although there was a mini golf course nearby. In Santa Clarita. Or in Canyon Country. Uh, So, I'll go first this time. You could listen to me and other stuff on, say, for example, every Tuesday, Cock and Bull Movie Talk is what it's called now. Because I have... Officially given up on talking about Tristram Shandy, a cock and bull story. And it's basically turned into a very long-winded bracket with guests of my, what was it, 36 favorite films <laughs> was the presentation. Although I don't even know if that's accurate. It's just the movies that got picked. And doing them a pair at a time. And you? And my podcast, Life as a Playlist, is a musical top 40 show that is seemingly vacillating between telling life stories. <laughs> so it's partly, yeah, I don't know what it's doing. It's kind of doing its own thing right now. It's partly autobiographical and it's partly providing social commentary on current events. And you can follow my Life is a Playlist pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Speak out! They can't stop you! Find your voice and use it! Keep this thing going. Pick a name. Go on the air. It's your life. Take charge of it. Do it. Try it. Try anything. Fill your guts out. Say shit and fuck a million times if you want to. But you decide. Fill the air. Steal it. Keep the air alive. Follow this show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pump Up the Minute. Or check lemmingdrops.com for links to the show, her show, my other shows, and lots of other stuff. Talk hard!
Everybody knows That's how it goes